I'm excited to get into Amos chapter 6. Um, I, I've enjoyed studying the Minor Prophets. Uh, it's been so good for my soul. But let's, we're going to keep going at it. And listen, if you're a guest, what we're doing is we're studying through the Minor Prophets. And we are going verse by verse. We're in chapter 6. We've already worked our way through the book of Jonah, Obadiah, Joel. Uh, now we're on Amos. We'll be on Hosea next. Let's do this. Let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. Someone told me last week that, I, that they're surprised that I haven't come up here yet with uh, some famous Amos cookies, right? Just uh, I'm trying to think if I've ever had a famous Amos cookie. So that's got to be next on the shopping list. I guess Amos is kind of famous. And today... He has something really good to communicate, and it's this idea of indifference, being indifferent to God. I mean, when you look at all the things that's going on, that in this chapter, he's hitting this idea of indifference, indifference. And I think indifference is a, a really dangerous place to be, being indifferent to God. And when you're indifferent, it's not like you don't intellectually know what God wants you to do or isn't communicating something to you. It's just that you just kind of don't care. It hasn't made an impact. Let's look at it. This is chapter 6 of Amos. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Now remember, he's talking to the northern kingdom. Samaria is another, is another word that you can use to describe the northern kingdom. The notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes... Pass over Kelna and see from there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Verse 4. Woe to those who live on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls. You know something's messed up if you're drinking wine out of bowls. And anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. It's talking about God's people. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So now he's talking about everybody in this northern kingdom. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative and one who anoints him... For the burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost part of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of Yahweh. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down with fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? By the way, uh, in the next couple of verses, he kind of gets sarcastic. Um, so um, if any of you ever wanted to be a prophet, it may be for this reason, okay? Don't you wish you had the spirit? Don't you wish sarcasm was a spiritual gift? We'd be a very talented people, wouldn't we? 
But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Sarcastic comment in verse 13. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not our own strength and captured Carnaim for ourselves? We'll explain that later, why it was sarcastic. For behold, I will rise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook, to the brook of Arba. Would you join with me? What a difficult, once again, people who are thousands of years removed from being the original recipients of this text. There's so many hurdles, it seems, to jump. But your word has been given to us. And your word has been given to us till today so that we can know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. Your promise and 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 is that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction. So help us for that. And righteousness, it helps us to know how to get right, how to stay right so that we can be perfectly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So help us. Your word, even Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. This was Jesus' Bible. It was good enough for our Savior, and Amos is still good enough for us. So let us drink deeply from the woes that were given to them, uh, resulting from their just indifference to the things of God. Woe is coming, judgment's coming, and it seems like they're just indifferent to it. They don't even care. God, how did they get there? Let us seek, let's, let us seek to understand so that we can protect our own lives. And God's people said, amen. All right, you can be seated. So Amos chapter 6, there's this idea that he's running with, this idea that, that they have become indifferent to the things of God. Now, as we read chapter 6, you may have thought to yourself, this doesn't make a lot of sense. My goal and job today is to try to help this text make sense. Now, first, indifference. Indifference is a dangerous place to be. Like I said earlier, when you're indifferent, you can know something intellectually, but it really not affect your life. And the northern kingdom was indifferent to the things of God. So indifferent that uh, this is what I don't know if I've made this point. But when the minor prophets are pronouncing the judgment that's coming on God's people for what they're doing, it's not like the minor prophets are saying completely new things. Like some things are new that it's going to be Assyria that's going to come and get them. But what the prophets are reiterating over and over is basically Deuteronomy 28 and 29, saying that if you disobey Moses' law, this is what's going to happen to you in the land. And over and over they were seeing that. In fact, chapter 5, that's what he was pointing out in chapter 5 is basically the Deuteronomy kind of judgment. So God's people knew in his word what would happen. They were just reiterating. Now here's the thing. When we are indifferent to God, we can hear God's word, but still just not even let it pierce our soul. And this is what was going on. It happens still today. I mean, how many times have we heard something over and over, a truth from God's word, and we've just said, not ready to obey that yet? They were indifferent. Now, the question we may ask ourselves is this. What was the particular sins that caused their indifference? Well, it's kind of like this. It's typically not usually just one sin. There's usually many tentacles to sin. I would tell you this, you can often trace sin to one very root kind of sin, and that's pride. Pride, and we'll see it here in the text here in a minute. Pride is really at the root base of, of all sin is pride. And, and actually at the root base of righteous living is humility. We'll look at that here in a minute. 
But first, let's start off with the outline. Like, who do we have to blame for this? Well, we have a lot of people to blame for this indifference, but it does kind of begin with the leadership. So look in verse 1, and you'll see kind of my first point. It began with the leaders. This indifference that they had, that they could hear these woes and it not pierce them. They could, they could hear reiterated over basically the judgments of Deuteronomy and it not pierce them at all. Look, in, look, look right here in verse 1. It says, Woe to those that are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. So he's basically speaking to the northern kingdom. He's saying, you think you're secure, you think you're okay, but you're not okay. The notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Now notice he says, to the notable men of the first nation. So he's pointing out that that basically it's the leadership that's kind of led you in this to begin with. They've been unwilling to repent. And actually, they've done worse than that. These notable men, most of them have built their wealth and become powerful because they've bribed judges. They've taken from the four. They've corrupted Moses' law for their own selfish gains so that they can live in luxury and have whatever they want and have no accountability in their life. This is, this is what has happened. It's the leaders of the nation that have done this. And by the way, were, were they real really fortified. Yeah, I mean, you even look over in Kings and you find that when Assyria does come, it takes about a, a three-year process to completely overcome the northern kingdom of Israel. They, they had many fortifications and they had a lot of strength, but they didn't have more strength than Yahweh. That's the thing. If we ever think we have more strength than Yahweh, then we're just being indifferent and lying to ourselves. So we see that he says the notable men are the first of the nation. Now, he also points out that these notable men will also be the first to experience judgment. Look at point number two. And point number two is those leaders will experience God's judgment first. Look at this in verse seven. If you bump down to verse seven, he says this. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those to go into exile. And the reverie of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Now, earlier in, in, in the couple of verses before this, it talks about what these notable people, how they've made their money and how they've lived in luxury and they've lived in luxury off of the back of, of taking advantage of poor people, taking advantage of people who, who, who got into some kind of debt and they took their land and they perverted it and made it to where the people couldn't get their land back and didn't have any way to sustain themselves and it just let them make more and more money. These people lived up in luxury as a result of that. They were running the country. And he says, you're going to be the first, in verse 7, to go into exile. And those leaders will experience God's judgment first. So the indifference that they have, you can, there's many fingers to point. The finger starts pointing at the leaders. It's kind of like this. Whatever the leadership does, typically the people are going to do as well. Whatever the leader does, whatever the boss does, the employees are typically going to do. If the boss has a lot of... um, a lot of unethical practices, it's probably easy to see why employees would have some unethical practices. If you've got a husband that cares just about himself, then you're going to see a household that cares just about themselves. If you see an an eldership, a leadership in a church, and they're afraid to confront sin in their own life, there's going to be a people that will be afraid to confront sin in their own life. If you see leadership in a church that won't confess their own sin, then you'll see a people like that. Do you see this? I mean, like what leaders do, it tends that everybody else tends to do. Now, that doesn't excuse anybody. We're going to see that in a moment. But we do see the leaders 
They're leading the way in this indifference. And God even says, I'm going to come and judge you first in verse 7. Therefore, verse 7, they shall now be first to go into exile. The first off the bat is going to be the leadership. When Assyria comes in, the leaders are getting, they're going to answer first. Here's a great application for us. Wherever we are in leadership, there's a higher accountability. So like a parent with the children, there is a higher accountability that we have in that. So, so like it's, it's not one of those things when like a parent with a kid where, you know what, I'm going to, you know, like, like the Lord understands. Like one of the hardest things when you're a parent is when you discipline, you discipline in righteousness, not anger, right? Here's the difference when you're a parent. When you're disciplining in unrighteousness, in sinful anger, you're just annoyed for what they're doing. You're annoyed that you're being inconvenienced. You want things to be swift and quick, and you are flabbergasted that you would have to say something more than one time. Now, I don't know about that. Never happened in my house, right? We say one thing, it happens the first time, but I've heard the stories that, that, you know, and other people who aren't perfect, like the preacher's home, you have to say things multiple times. And then what happens is this. Something happens, and you begin to start yelling at them. You begin to use manipulation tactics. When you're disciplining in righteousness, it's a totally different thing. Like, when they're younger, you, you now go right over to them. You explain their sin. You give them the appropriate physical discipline for that. And then you love them afterwards. And you let them know that daddy's doing this in obedience to the Lord. As they've grown the Lord and they're older and they're maturing. And they're now, if they're like followers of Jesus, like, like now when, you, when they sin, you're actually sitting down and trying to go after the heart. You're trying to see what, what worship has happened in your life. Where, like for instance, let's say your kid's 17 and they're a follower of Jesus and and they've done wrong again. If like your first thing is, I'm just going to take your phone, go to your room, shut up and don't talk to me. Then you're really kind of disciplining in anger. But if you're kind of like, my discipline is righteous. I'm trying to correct behavior. I'm trying to go after their soul. You're going to sit down and go like, hey, we're going to need to have a conversation. What does this reflect the decisions that you're making? What does this reflect about your worship? By the way, growing up, I always loved it when like my, my sister. Here was the difference between my sister and I. <laughs> when it came to discipline... Like, I would rather have a talking to any day, right? Because, man, I just did not want to get the whipping, okay? Did want it. My sister, though, and dad would always give us a choice. I'm not saying do this, right? I I don't. You know, when I talk to parents, I kind of tell them this. The way it works is the younger your children are, you're appealing to your authority. You're appealing appealing to oftentimes what, what hurts like a spanking. As they grow older and mature, you're appealing to the heart. There's this transition that needs to happen. That's why I always tell parents that have like the two-year-old, don't go around there asking your two-year-old, like, what do you want to eat? What do you want to wear? But they need to understand at that point early in life is that you are, they need to understand that this is really a benevolent dictatorship. That's what parenting is. As they transition to the older years, though, things start to change a little bit. In safety, you start to give them some options, some choices, and then you start to dialogue with them about how those reflect their worship of Christ. And so there's a a difference. So if you're like, you're still whipping your seven, you're still spanking your 17 year old, you kind of like lost track of where things are at. So I kind of tell parents, it starts where the, when they're younger, you're appealing more towards the physical, you're appealing more towards the rod, and as they mature in Christ, you're now appealing more towards the heart, towards rich, full communication. This is what it means to bring your children up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. There has to be a transition. That was all free for you. I do remember, though, I always loved it. My dad, especially in our teenage years, um, in our younger teenage years, 
sometimes, I'm, when I'm saying teenage, I'm saying like 10-year-old, probably like 8 to 10. I remember like when we would get in trouble, we would still, we would still get spankings or we could get a conversation with dad, right? You always love those kind of two things, right? And uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember like if dad would give me the option of like a spanking or a talk, um, I would pick the talk any day, right? But my sister, man, that was like the worst. Like, if you gave my sister a chance <laughs> between spanking and a conversation, my sister would pick a spanking every single time. She would just be like, Dad, I do not want to have a conversation. Like, just go ahead and get the belt out right now. Let's just kind of knock this out of the way. Anybody would have been like that? So here's, no, y'all would all want a conversation first? Man, that's great. It was like the worst for my sister. She's like, please just spank me now. Let me just get out of this conversation, Dad. So here's what happens. When you're a leader, when you're a leader, you have to realize there's a higher level of accountability where you're at. Higher level of accountability where you're at. And when you're a mom to children, a dad to children, a husband to a wife, a manager to employee, elders to a church body, someone who's teaching God's word, someone who's making disciples, uh, who's a disciple maker making disciples. Those who are in leadership will experience God's judgment first. And it's a heavier. By the way, let me just say this, because we got more more young couples around here. Um, You know, here's what I loved about my parents growing up. Um, My mom and dad. Um, They... Man, they'll, they'll tell you they weren't perfect, and there was still a lot of Christ principles that we didn't have in the earlier years. But, but I did know this, that when my parents did discipline me, it was out of love. It was out of correcting behavior. And that's how you know the righteous difference. When your discipline is unrighteous, you're not really concerned about correcting behavior as much as you're kind of trying to accomplish what's convenient for you. When you're about God's righteousness, you're like, I'm disciplining to correct behavior. I want to see them walk in righteousness. And that's two different kind of things. Like, he, you, you can know it. So, like, as my girls are getting older now, uh, my discipline of them is... So, for instance, yesterday there was something that happened between them that we need to sit down and talk. And there need to be a point where I called one, both of them to repentance. Like, this is something to ask for forgiveness for. That, I was busy. And that took time, right? That took time out of a busy day to do. But that was righteous discipline at the moment. But if I would have been walking in unrighteous discipline, you know what I would have done? Be quiet, shut your mouth, go to your room, and just don't talk to each other the rest of the day. Now, let me tell you, that would have solved the issue right then in about 30 seconds, and we would have been done. Would that accomplish a change of behavior? Would that have been accomplished anything righteous? No. We had to sit down there and, and, and have a conversation, and that conversation was lengthy, and that conversation was me replaying what I heard, how they treat each other. And that conversation had a result of, this is how you sin. This is how you sin. Now, what's the righteous response to this? Nothing about that was convenient, right? But here's the deal. Because I'm a leader, because God, I, I mean, God put me there. I'm accountable to him. And if things go bad, I get the first, the, the finger points at me and Cindy and I first. And if things go wrong in my marriage, the first finger that gets pointed is at me now that doesn't negate cindy i mean i'm not even sure cindy i don't know where i'm pointing over here you know there's there's oh there she is at the back right i'm not even sure my wife has a depraved nature right i I know i know arabella has a depraved nature but i'm just not really sure about cindy back there by the way 
as a leader, one of the things you also got to do is confess your own sin. Like, you ever wonder, like, why, like, why will my kids not own up to their sin, all right? I, I know, like, that doesn't happen with any of your kids. I get it, right? I mean, my kids always confess their sin first time, right? That, that's just how they always are, perfect preacher kids. You know what? Have you ever actually admitted to your kids your sin? When you've sinned against them, when you've raised your voice, when you've yelled at them, when you've tried to manipulate them, when you've tried to just discipline them out of convenience, have you, have you actually said, you know what, Daddy sinned against God, he sinned against you by yelling at you, will you, will you forgive me? Have you actually ever asked your kids to forgive you for disciplining them in anger? Have you ever done that? I cannot tell you scores of people that have said, I've never heard my parent say, will you forgive me? Have you ever heard your spouse say that? I mean, like, if you've been married for 40 years and, and there has never come that thing out of your mouth of, I, you know, it doesn't have to be the way I'm telling you, like, I sinned against God, I sinned against you. That's the way I like to do it. But have you ever, have you never, have you ever said, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? Like, man, if you've never said that, you've been married 40 years, I'm willing to bet, just bet that you've probably sinned against them in some way. Here's what we try to do. I'm sorry, I did this, but I only said that because you did that. That's how it usually works. This is why I love, I coach people all the time. This is how you confess sin. Don't use the word sorry. That's a word of defense or apology. That's a word of defense. You say, I sinned against God. I sinned against you. Name what you did, then ask for forgiveness. That's like a a more biblically centered, gospel full kind of response. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because I'm saying this. When you're a leader in any sphere of life, all pace is set by you. And number two, you will be the first to be disciplined. So that's just part of where it is. I mean, just anywhere you're at in life, whether you're the husband, you're the manager with employees, you're the supervisor, you're the parent, doesn't matter. So where does he, who does he come after? The indifference. Who does he come after first? Man, he comes after the leaders. He comes after them. Now, we don't have to leave it there because people are responsible for the Lord. So look at point number three. The leadership's indifference, though, it does not excuse the people's indifference. Although the leaders have a huge impact, they are not the ultimate cause. Look at here in number three. The leadership's indifference does not excuse the people's indifference. So although the leaders of Israel are indifferent to God, ignoring God, ignoring his woes, they love all the prosperity they've got at the backs of perverting justice, but the people of the northern kingdom of Israel are just as righteous. They are participating in idolatrous worship. They are stiff-necked. They are raising themselves against the Lord. Look at verse number 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself... I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now, the leaders live in the city, but everybody lives in the city and all that's in it. So I want you to understand, although he comes after the leaders, they get the first judgment. That does not erase all the people for for their indifference to God as well. He says in verse 8, all the city will be delivered up. Do you get that? That means... Everybody is accountable for God. That means that if you are in a situation where the leader is doing wrong, that doesn't negate your responsibility before God of doing wrong, right? So for instance, wherever you're in 
at, and if there's someone in leadership over you and they're asking you to sin, you actually never can obey that, that person in that sin. So like, for instance, I heard a story this past week where um, a, a lady had said, a lady's husband was asking her to sin. And she said, well, the Bible says I'm supposed to be submissive. So I just, I want to do what's right. So I, I did what, I tried to be submissive and do exactly what my husband had told me to do. But what her husband had told her to do, do was sinful. See, that, that wouldn't be something that you would ever want to do. You, you don't follow into sin. No one, the only authority anybody ever has is actually delegated authority. That means if your boss comes in and wants you to lie about a report or your boss is something like he, he wants you to, he, he wants you to do some kind of unsavory practice to cut taxes for the company, you don't, you don't submit to that. You don't, it, it, it's his fault for asking you to do that, but at the same time, you become complicit if you cooperate with it. And we find that, that God's people started cooperating with all this kind of perverse thing that was happening. And by the way, look in verse 8. He says, I abhor the what of Jacob? The what? So get this. What was at the root, which is the root of all sin? It's just pride. It's pride. I mean, pride is what calls Satan's fall. Pride is what calls Adam and Eve's fall. Pride is what still we're struggling with. Pride is we want what we want. We believe we are God. We believe we want our own way and we want our own glory. Pride is about self-glory. The opposite of pride is humility. Humility is nothing's really about me. It's about loving God and loving others. It's about glorifying God and doing good for others. That's what a humble life. You know, it's funny about humility. Humility is that one virtue that you can never say that you have, right? If you ever walk around and go like, I'm so glad I'm, I'm not prideful, right? I'm so glad I'm humble. Like, you just can't. You can't say that about yourself. Now, could someone observe it and say that? Yeah. But can you say that? No, because intrinsically, when you're humble, you don't even know it. Do this. Look at your neighbor and say this. When you're humble, look at your other neighbor. You don't even know it. This is what's great about humility. You never actually know you're humble. If you ever start doing that you're calculating things you just don't even know it so what happened with them it was all about pride it's all about pride self-glory and when when they did that they worshiped the way they wanted to worship didn't need moses commandments didn't obey moses commandments for how to treat the poor they left off social injustice they started to live for their luxury and they got very indifferent to the things of God. So indifferent. I mean, look, God's judgment's coming not only on the leaders, but also on the people. Look in verse 9. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. Remember, it's total judgment. 10 men in one house. It's not just the leaders that are in a house. 10 men. It's everybody. By the way, a lot of people would say this is just a visual that he's using in verse 9 to describe the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel had ten tribes that went with it. The southern had two. So some say he's making an allusion specifically in this example to the northern kingdom. I, I don't think that's far off. Look at verse 9. If ten men remain in one house, they shall die. So listen, it's not just the leaders that are, that are indifferent to God. The people are indifferent to God too. Now, grant you, the leaders didn't make it any easier but the people were still responsible for God for their rebellion, for their indifference to God. Now watch what happens. <clears throat> Look at verse 10. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house. So just so you know, when there is a cataclysm, like in this, in this situation, the prophet's saying, 
It's going to be so devastating what Assyria is going to do to you. It's going to be like you go into a house, 10 people live in that house, everybody's dead. And usually the, the closest relative now is responsible to kind of bury those dead. That's kind of how it works. And in this, in this kind of fictitious situation that's realistic to what the Assyrian exile and captivity is going to be, he says, so and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house. So in this scenario, the relatives come in, 10 people are dead in the house, the relatives come in, He's going to try to go bury them, but there's someone that's hiding out in the house for some reason. Hiding out from the Assyrians, basically. Is there still anyone with you, he shall say? No, says that person still hanging out in the house. And he shall say, silence! We must not mention the name of the Lord. Now, it's kind of confusing. Why would this person say such a thing? Well, when you're indifferent to God, and when, like, when, when we're indifferent to God, we may intellectually know things about God, but we are not catching his character at all. And then like, here's what happens. When you're indifferent to God and judgment comes, you're overtaken by it. You don't even know what's going on. You're utterly confused. You're not sure if God's your friend or your foe. So like, when God, if, if like you're not indifferent to God, and let's say like your life is centered on Jesus, right? But you've gotten in sin and you're experiencing some of God's discipline, you're able to accept it, know it, and be okay with it and go like, yeah, I, I, man, I get it. Hey, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you're disciplining me. Boy, this in Hebrews 12, this shows me that I'm your child. Like, man, if I wasn't, man, it'd be, I'd consider myself like not your child if you weren't disciplined. Like, that's it. Like, you got a right mind in that moment. But when you're indifferent to God, here's what happens. When his discipline does come, you don't know heads or tails at the moment. Because look at it. God comes in relative who's coming to get the 10 dead bodies there's some guy hiding out in this house he asks is there anyone here with you and here's the guy the guy goes no shh don't say anything about Yahweh what's going on with this guy he doesn't know if God's his friend or his foe at this moment like he doesn't know he's like don't even say his name because if you say his name another big judgment's going to come he's treating like God like some super kind of superstitious thing he doesn't know if God's for him and he doesn't know if God's against him this is the danger of indifference that when we are indifferent and God does bring discipline to his children you don't even you even know what to do with it you don't know if God's your friend or your foe in the moment are you tracking with me on this do you get this like this is he's like shh don't even say his name because something worse might happen. He doesn't understand that he's in this sin because of his rebellion. By the way, in this, here's what's great about the gospel. Oh, man, I love it. Because I know that while we were yet sinners, what? So in Christ, when discipline happens in my life, I don't have to go like, God, you're my enemy. I can be like, man, you're my daddy. Totally different. When you're indifferent to the things of God, you don't know that. I remember one time a guy had called me and he said, man, I think God's cursed me. I was like, okay, okay. And he said, I was driving to work and a, a rock hit my windshield and just cracked it. Like God's condemned me and cursed me. I was like, man, dude, you just need a hug. Like, like a rock's got you to have bent for the day. Like, dude, bro, you should just go back home, right? And just like get in the bed and eat some ice cream and just like call it a day. <laughs> You don't need a rock in your windshield to stay home and eat some ice cream. I just advise it, okay? So, and I said, okay, okay. I said, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Yes. I mean, like, really, is he yours? Have you repented of your sinfulness, trusted him, 
Is he your true one hope, joy, satisfaction? Is he your Lord and Savior? Yes, 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 yes. Are you positive about that? Yes, 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 yes. I was like, okay. That rock that hit your, hit your windshield was not like some condemnation for your life. Now, could God have been using that to discipline you? Maybe. Is there some known sin? But, but God is for you, not against you. How, do you. how can I tell you that? Because if God would not spare his wrath on his son, why would you not think he would not give you all things freely? Why would you not think he's for you in the end? Even if it was his hand of discipline on you, he's still for you in the end. Because his hand of discipline is trying to correct your behavior so that you can glorify him and live for him and be satisfied in him. So like, this is the wonder of the gospel. You don't have to act like this guy in verse 10 who's like, shh, shh, shh. don't even say God's name because I don't know what's going to happen here. You can be like, man, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like, you're so secure in him. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? When, the, when, the, when your life is indifferent, you don't know what to do when bad things happen. When your life is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on his life, death, burial, resurrection, that while you were a sinner, he loved you. And that he, God did not spare his wrath on his son so that, that he could give you all things freely. So that, like, you don't, you don't doubt these things. When bad things happen, you can say, Lord, this is from discipline in my life. I accept it. Or, Lord, this is just like these these things are hard and like an earthly difficulty has happened. But I know you're going to use it for your good and my good to make much of your name. And like you walk totally different. Like you're okay. But boy, I tell you what, man, when you're indifferent, man, that's the people, man. They were indifferent. They were being judged for it just as well. And they couldn't make heads or tails of God's character in the midst of it. Look at verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, the great house shall be struck down. The great house are those who have actually profited all of this social injustice that they've done towards the poor. And the little houses into the bits. This would be the people with little resources who are rebelling against God in their own worship as well. Everybody gets judged. So it's not just the leaders. Although the leaders do get the first of the judgment. And it's not, and, and the people are held accountable too. Right, you get that. So this means... That if your parents weren't perfect parents, and nobody was a perfect parent. This means even if your parents weren't perfect parents, it does not justify walking in sinful patterns and actions today. It, it doesn't negate the sin that they did, but it doesn't mean that you actually have a right to walk in any kind of rebellion against God today. Like, I love the story of Joseph, right? Because Joseph never said what his brothers did wasn't wrong. Remember at the end when he says, you meant evil against me? He didn't deny what they had done. But God meant it for good to save much people alive. You know, if we were as angry with our sin as we are about our parent, with our parents, we finally might get someplace in life. Like, it's okay to go, my parents sinned against me and did me wrong in this area. But it's not okay to get bitter and not better. How did Joseph make it? Because he could view it right. Like, yeah, you did wrong to me. But... But God used this for his glory. Like, where was Joseph? Like, Joseph is walking in a gospel centrality. Like, he, he doesn't have to sit there and think like, shh. Because everything, every time I do something right for God, like this lady frames me for rape, and then now I'm thrown into a prison. Y- y'all get this right? Like, all these bad things that keep happening, he keeps going like, you know, I don't understand. But, man, I trust the Lord, and he's going to bring this about. And that's how Joseph goes through life and is better and not bitter. And he doesn't. It's, he doesn't negate the wrong that his brothers did in any of it. So they were guilty. These people were guilty. The leaders were guilty. The people were guilty. Look at verse number four. Are y'all still with me? Are y'all still alive and awake? Y'all okay? All right. Can I get an amen? 
Can I get like a Baptist amen? See, that's I like that. Can I get a Pentecostal amen? Uh, there you go. There you go. I like that. I like that. Now, calm down. We don't get too crazy. We'll be waving flags here in a minute. Okay. <laughs> Just messing. <laughs> I actually, would, I actually kind of like a, like a flag wave. All right. Number two. Verse two. This is point number four. I better get back in my notes, man. I'm going wheels off now. There's no telling what will come out of my mouth. It's a dangerous thing to give a mic to a guy. Point number four. Those indifferent to God do not pay attention to the warning signs. So we see the leaders, leaders of first judge, the people are not excused from following in that sin. And we see, number four, that this indifference, that they didn't pay attention to the warning signs. Here's what I love about God. He is so gracious to warn us. He's so gracious. I mean, if you've, if you've been convinced of anything reading through these minor prophets, how many times has God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them? How gracious is he? I, I mean, this is amazing that he's done this. So he says, hey, because um, remember, the northern kingdom of Israel thought they were way too powerful and way too strong. And, and, and I got to hand it to them. It, it took Assyria about three years to kind of get the final conquest of what we see in Kings. So that tells me that, boy, they did have a built-up kind of military system. They felt pretty good about themselves. But the prophet points out to them and says, hey, I want to point out a couple other places that were pretty strong and they fell. So if these other places that are much stronger than you fell, why do you think you can't fall? So look at it, verse number two. Pass over to Kalna and see. Now, Kalna, it was a um, Nimrod. You remember a guy named Nimrod, which I don't know why no one is using that name for their kids, but and just, you know, that would be a good baby name. Wonderful in the playground with all their friends, okay? Never would get taunted for that one. Remember, Nimrod, this was the city that Nimrod had built, um, uh, Kalna. It was, became a mighty and great city, but it fell. And the prophet says, look at that city. If that city can fall, you don't think you can fall? Then he says, and go over there, and, and from there go to Hamath, the great. Hamath was another city, and it was overrun by the Assyrians earlier, much greater than the northern kingdom Israel, and it fell. Then he says, go down to Gath, the Philistines. You know what's interesting? In chapter 1, do you remember in chapter 1 when first Amos comes and pronounces judgment against all the pagan nations around Israel? Do y'all remember chapter 1? I mean, I know y'all remember everything I preach, so why am I even saying that? Of course you remember it. That was a joke, right? By the way, that was sarcasm. When he talked about the land of the Philistines, right? Did you ever catch that he didn't mention Gath? Like there's five major cities of the Philistines, right? And he mentioned four of them in chapter 1, verse 8. But he didn't mention Gath. Why is that? Because Gath had already fell. When you look through the scriptures, you find that Gath had already been attacked by King Haziel of Aram and King Uzziah of Judah. And so basically he says, hey, what about Gath? Gath was much more stronger. That was like one of the principal cities of the Philistines, and they're gone. So his point to him is, or is, in verse 2, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put away the, the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. He's just telling them, you think that you can stand. Look at the warning signs. If Kelna, if Hamath, if Gath, if all those cities much stronger than you could fall, why don't you think you could fall as well? But here's the thing. When we're indifferent to the things of God, 
we never see the warning signs. We never see the warning signs. Oh, and my friends, God gives plenty of warning signs. And, and like, you know where God gives warning signs? Often from the body of Christ. This is why we need a church. That's why you need groups of people. You need small groups. You need people that know you. Because what happens is these people are in your life, and they start calling out warning signs in your life. They start pointing things out. If a person becomes indifferent to God, they don't see the warning signs. And then when discipline comes, man, they don't even know how to make heads from tails from it. Are y'all, are y'all understanding indifference, how indifference kind of works? This is where they're at. They're just indifferent. Number five. They were indifferent to God because they were distracted. They were distracted with life's luxuries. They were indifferent to God. They didn't heed God's warning signs. They also were distracted by life's luxuries. They had lots of luxuries. Um, it's dangerous to be prosperous. Now, um, and they were really wealthy. And some of this wealth actually was more ill-gotten, but they enjoyed their prosperity. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, When you look at America and you compare us to the rest of the world, we actually are very prosperous people. We are prosperous people. Now, that's nothing to say it's bad. I mean, God prospers people all throughout the Scripture. Prosperity just becomes bad when you start to put a fist around it and go, God, this or else. Or you let that be something that you get so scared of losing it that you're not generous with your life. Like, like here's the, here's the interesting truth. Do you know it's easier for a person who has hardly any resources to be generous than a person who has a lot of resources? I mean, even per capita in our country, you know, the people who are the most generous are not the most wealthy. The people who are most generous are the people who have the least because it's really easy when you don't have very much, when you sacrificially give, you're kind of like, well, it didn't matter anyways. Like, like (laughs) I was living, I was living off manna anyways here. So like, You know, I can give the widows two mites. But when you have resources, you start to have a certain lifestyle. And then that lifestyle, you can sometimes feel like, what happens if I don't have it today? Where the person who's living day to day, they don't ever think, they've never had the luxury of thinking such kind of thoughts. They're just like going for manna each day. So they could be generous with what they have in their hand that day because they didn't have much anyways. When you have resources, like that's the hard part is, is having resources and then feeling like you've got to protect it at all costs, or you have to go like this or else. It can be, but if you have resources and you're able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Like if the Lord, if I have this today, if I don't have it tomorrow, I'm going to be okay. I can rest secure that I have a home in heaven with him and then I'm going to be okay. Like you handle it totally different. And you see your resources as something to serve the kingdom and not to be served by them. And I'm telling you, luxury and resources are a terrible master. There's nothing wrong with enjoying them, but you can see what happens here. They do more than enjoy what, what they have. They let it rule their life, and it, and it makes it it, 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 it contributes to their indifference to God. Look in verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, something very costly. Uh, it doesn't seem comfortable, but whatever. Maybe they got a bad back and they need a hard bed, all right? Ivory might do the trick, my friend. So they're lying on beds of ivory. They're stretching themselves out on their couches. The ivory and the couches just reflect what's going on in their heart. They're lying down and they're stretching themselves. They're taking it easy. Don't think that it's bad to have a lazy boy recliner or anything like that. But don't make that lazy boy recliner like the end all, end all be all. And if the lazy boy recliner is kind of like, yeah, uh, I love my lazy boy recliner. And you know what? When I'm in it, I just rather watch TV than like make sure I have my time with the Lord. Then you can kind of know like, hey, that luxury has gone kind of wonky for yourself at that moment. It says they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. 
can't identify with that. I hate lamb. But nonetheless, they're eating, they're eating really good, man. Nothing wrong with that. But their eating good was just a way for them to drown out the voice of Yahweh. They were more satisfied with their meat than the, 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 the true meat of the Lord, the meat of the word. They were more satisfied by their bread than the bread of life. Verse number five, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. So these people were distracted by the music they were listening to and the music they were listening to had absolutely no point to it. Absolutely no point. Just idle kind of stuff. By the way, um, I think music's really great. Um, I don't know if I'm really a proponent of like, this is Christian music that's not, because to be honest with you, some of the stuff that even is in the genre of Christian music, I think is just self-focused, selfish, and self-seeking. And I'm, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's even much better. I would say this. There's music that glorifies God, and there's music that doesn't glorify God. There's music that has a point, and there's music that do, doesn't have a point. These people were being distracted. They were doing any kind of distraction they could to not obey God, not to listen to these warning signs. Uh, you've heard me over and over say this, but man, this this little phone that's in our hands, like I wonder sometimes are we indifferent to God because this has just given us so many reasons for distractions. From Facebook to Twitter to Instagram to Netflix to Hulu, we can watch and have everything at our fingertips. I'm wondering if this is what's causing us at times to be indifferent to God. We're distracted. By the way, verse 6, who drink wine in bowls. I'm just telling you, if you go to the Mexican food restaurant and you drink that margarita out of that thing, that giant bowl, man, this might be you. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Have y'all seen that thing, that like the big margarita bowl that you can get right there? No? Man, you ought to try it. You'll feel real good at the end of it. <laughs> man, they're drinking wine from a bowl. Man, something's messed up about that. Like they are going way overboard. They are indulging themselves. By the way, I'm just joking. <laughs> Don't go do the giant margarita bowl. You know, unless you've got like 12 straws, okay? Here's what they're doing. They're partying. They're medicating themselves with alcohol. They're going way above the board. I mean, alcohol, wine typically was more, was something cleaner than, than water for them. And it was something that was drinkable, okay? And, and so that, that's what they usually did. But when it goes from whatever kind of container they would use for wine, it's going to a bowl. Like they're going way overboard. And here's what they're doing. They're trying to distract themselves from God with their wine. I will say this. Someone asked me this past week, um, what do you think about alcohol? And I said, well, I'll tell you this. The Bible condemns the abuse of alcohol, the uses under liberty. And there's lots of, there, there's, there's lots of things you've got to consider in liberty. Does it cause you to sin? Does it cause others to sin around you? Love other people more than your liberty? I mean, all these things you've got to consider but I will say this. Here's one thing I discovered that alcohol does for some people. And it's kind of like this thing where people go like, well, I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't drink that much. Yeah, you may not drink that much, but are, how, how you use the alcohol, are you using it to medicate your life? Are you using it to numb things so that you don't have to do the hard work of listening to God, glorifying God, repenting? I mean, even if it's kind of this thing like, well, I mean... Y'all do know we're deceptive, right? And deceitful. I mean, I mean, have you realized that about ourselves? Here's my fear with alcohol sometimes. And by the way, don't think like, man, I can't, man, I got to, Nick's coming over, got to hide the booze, right? I mean, like you can, we can sit down, we can have wine together, we can drink, right? I mean, 
you know, I, I'm just not much of a drinker. So when I do, if I do have some wine with you, just don't expect me to finish the glass. Maybe let me share that, all right? Because I'm, I'm, you know, I, I still just would rather have Kool-Aid, right? So like, just, just be patient with me. But I'll tell you this. Here's what I see sometimes. I'll see people will go, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't get inebriated off this. This just, I just use this to kind of knock the edge off. And I'm like, okay, but are you knocking that edge off so that you don't have to listen to the Lord? Are you knocking that edge off so that you can continue to walk in that indifference to God? Are y'all catching me? Are y'all catching me? I mean, I, I mean, I mean, just be cautious with that, with that alcohol. And by the way, you can know you got a problem with alcohol is if, if you go home today and throw it all in the dumpster, what you have in your house, and then you start to have withdrawals, then, then you maybe have more of a problem than what you think. You, you honestly maybe do. But these people, that's what they're doing, man. They're putting it in bowls. They're putting it in bowls. Being indifferent. And in, they're anointing themselves with the finest oils. Judgment's coming, and all they're doing is using the finest oils. They're using it up. They're, they're fragrancing the thing out. And you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Instead of anointing themselves with oil, what they should have been doing is grieving in sackcloth and ashes for the, sin, for the sin that they've done, the indifference to God that's resulting in a cataclysmic kind of judgment that's coming on them. So here's the end of the matter. Verse 12. Indifference or not, man, judgment's inevitable. It's coming. Look at verse 12. Do horses run on rocks? And does one plow there with oxen? He's basically... Be, okay, anybody love sarcasm? Anybody love to be sarcastic, right? So you... if uh, I got a couple people. I know I've got a church full of sarcastic people because I've talked to you people. <laughs> if that was a spiritual gift, we would be... We could call ourselves like Carville Sarcastic Bible Church, right? Love sarcasm myself. He gets a little sarcastic at this point to kind of get his point across. Don't use that righteously, you know, tonight with, with your spouse, okay? Like, I'm just trying to be what Amos was doing. It's my gift. Verse 12, do horses run on rocks? No. It's sarca- sarcasm. Does one plow there with oxen? He's just saying, like, do, do oxens plow rocks, you know, like you would have filled? He's just using sarcasm. He's basically saying this. This is a ridiculous thought. That you think that if you just remain indifferent to God, that nothing's going to happen. If you just keep ignoring God, that none of this judgment they'd be pronouncing is going to happen. It's kind of like the person, you ever met a person who never went to the doctor? Because if they go to the doctor, the doctor might tell them something bad. And then they would be sick. But the truth is, whether they go to the doctor or not, if they're sick, something's going to happen at some point, right? I know what you're thinking. That would never happen. Really? I know tons of people that will never go to the doctor because, you know, they figure, well, if I don't go to the doctor, then the doctor can't tell me anything bad. If you don't tell me bad, then nothing bad can happen. I'm like, I don't know if it quite works that way, but boy, that sounds really, that sounds really good and novel in the head. It's a ridiculous thought, though, to have that, to say, oh, well, I, I won't be sick if I never go to a doctor. It, and he's saying this is ridiculous. Horses don't run on rocks. No one plows rocks with an oxen. You who have turned, in verse 12, justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You have been perverting justice. You've turned justice wrong. You have committed social injustice towards the poor. Then he gets sarcastic here in verse 13. Like you, th- you think your indifference is going to make it to where none of this is going to happen to you. But verse 13, you who, ha- who rejoice and Lodabar, who say, we have not by our own strength captured carnaum for ourselves. Very difficult, but here's the interesting thing. 
The word Lodabar. It's a place they had conquered, all right, under King Jeroboam's reign. They conquered it. It's east of the Jordan River. Lodabar means nothing. That's the literal meaning, nothing. That word Carnaim, further east, and that word Carnaim means horns. It denotes strength. <laughs> so I know it's kind of hard to see, but basically what he's doing is he's kind of being a little snarky here. He's saying, you who rejoice in Lodabar. He's basically saying, you rejoice in nothing. You got Lodabar? Lodabar is nothing because you're going to lose it all. And you who rejoice in your strength of Carnaim, saying like, we've got Carnaim. Look how strong we are. That's, your strength isn't going to hold back what God's going to bring through Assyria. So you're, you're Lodabar. You're nothing. Even the strength you think you have, Carnaim, you don't even have that. You're nothing. Like you're fooling yourself. Indifference or not, judgment's coming for you. Just because you ignored it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So verse number 14. And behold, Amos says that God says, I will raise up a nation against you. This is Assyria. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath. Labo Hamath is the northernmost part of the Israel kingdom to the brook of Arabah, which is the southernmost part of, of Israel. It's a valley. So he's basically saying from north to south, the whole thing's gone. Like God's going to take it all away. <laughs> All right, that's Amos chapter 6. You know, applause at the end, please. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just, that's what he has to say. As we cap this off, so here's maybe the thought. Okay, where's the gospel in this? Like, good night. Where's the gospel in this? Here's what I love. Indifferent or not, judgment was coming on them. And God gave them so many opportunities. But here's what I love. Here's what I love when I think about the gospel message. Indifferent or not, today, whether we act indifferent or not to the things of God, that didn't stop what Jesus was going to do. And even our indifference today didn't stop. This is why I love Romans 5 I came up here saying, while we were yet sinners, right? While we were still indifferent. I don't like the indifference that they have. I don't like it in my own life, but I'm so thankful that my faithfulness, that, God, that Jesus' work did not depend on my faithfulness, or, and Jesus' work did not depend on how repentant I was, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Whether I'm indifferent or not, that doesn't stop the work of what Jesus was doing. Nothing, my sin could not stop what he was going to do, and I love that. That's where I see the gospel in this. I even see more. Indifferent or not, God's judgment's coming on us all. If we're in Christ, then then that 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 justice and judgment in the end will result in us being in glory. If we're not in Christ, that justice and judgment will end up in hell. But whether we make a decision or not, whether we're indifferent or not, that doesn't stop anything that God's going to do. God's going to do what God does. This is why I see the gospel in this. Our sin could not stop the Savior from doing what he would. And he loved us in spite of it. And our indifference today is not going to stop anything that God's going to do. So here's the only thing we can do is just bow the knee, bow the knee and submit to him. That's like all we can do. So like when indifference comes in our life, like we just got to bow the knee. We got to repent. We got to, we come back to him. We realize that, that Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners. Would you stand with me and could we pray over this and sing back to the Lord? May our souls be focused on your kingdom, Lord. May Amos chapter 6 not be a description of our own life. Lord, where there is 
Would you let us all deeply push into the scriptures this week so that we can be shaken out of our indifference to God? We can hear the Spirit. Lord, if there are things that we're exposing ourselves to this week, whether it's through Facebook or whether it's through things we're watching or or things that are making us indifferent to you, would you... Would you remove those this week? Would you let us be more satisfied with you? Would you let us push into relationships? Would you let us heed what those relationships say to us? So we can see where there's indifference to the things of God. Would you center our souls back on Jesus? Would we, would the kindness of God lead us to repentance? Would we be, could we be overwhelmed today that you would not spare your wrath on your own son for us, that while we were yet sinners, let that lead us back to you. Let us be overcome with the gospel once again. And we'll praise you for your glory, for your renown in your name. And God's people said, let's worship together for just a little bit before we're dismissed.